Welcome to National Capital Bible Church's New Year's Eve service. Glad to have you all here. I know that there are probably other places that you might, some people might like to be, but I can't think of a better place than church and focusing on our Lord Jesus Christ than at the end of the year and beginning the new year. The first part of our service is a communion service in which we do focus on our Lord Jesus Christ. It's also called the Lord's Table. Tonight, we'll have our military personnel. Enjoy seeing them all in uniform and those who are not participating in the communion service. Glad to see that you're in uniform as well. But we are going to ask them to pass out the communion elements. The reason we do this, first of all, of course, with communion elements, we are celebrating our Lord Jesus Christ's work on the cross. But this also allows us to acknowledge our national freedom. We recognize that the freedom we have, the freedom that we celebrate at the close of every year and the beginning of the new year is given to us very often by our military services. They not only provide it, but they preserve it as well. The United States has a rich spiritual heritage, and we know that ultimately God has provided our freedom. So we're not saying that we're not leaving God out here. We know that he ultimately provides our freedom. However, we also know that God uses means. He uses instrumentality to accomplish his will. And therefore, we know that immediately or directly, our freedom comes by way of the sacrificial service of our military forces. The military uniforms that you see here tonight are here and represent, they are symbolically representing our national freedom. So when we look at those uniforms, that's what we should think. We should see them as a symbol of America's freedom. But they also are a symbol of the service and the sacrifice that American men and women have provided over the years. They have shed often their blood in that service, and they've done this on many battlefields, both those that here at home and foreign battlefields as well. And this is what we might call a payment for our freedom. When we see a military uniform, we should think that this is a symbol of our freedom, but that the freedom does not come at no cost. It comes at a cost. And so we should see the uniforms and we should think, thank you. Thank you for your service. The physical attainment of liberty is not purchased nor protected by political speech, nor by governmental maneuvering, by diplomatic promises, or by international alliances. But in the end, by the service and the sacrifice and very often the shedding of blood of our nation's youth. The same is true of our spiritual liberty. Mankind finds itself hopelessly lost, hopelessly and helplessly lost. And we find ourselves that way because we cannot in any way on our own find or achieve a relationship with God. No amount of effort on mankind's part or an individual's part could bring about our own spiritual freedom. We are powerless, in a word, to help ourselves. The work or the payment for that spiritual freedom, salvation, was accomplished by our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. His sacrifice, His shedding of blood... He voluntarily goes to the cross to accomplish our spiritual freedom.
again our salvation. And the Lord Jesus Christ goes to the cross and takes in his body our sins. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he, God the Father, made him the Son, who knew no sin to be sin for us, for the entire human race, that we might become the righteousness of God in him or by means of him. It's through him that we attain righteousness. We understand the phrase shedding of blood on the battlefield can be taken both literally and figuratively. More often than not, there is literal bleeding on the military, uh, through military engagements. However, figuratively, it also means that freedom isn't free. It means injuries will be sustained and lives will be lost. That's what we understand by that phrase. Sometimes, during a period of relative peace, it's easy for us to forget the fact that freedom of our nation began, first of all, by a very lengthy military struggle. And we have quite often needed to return to the battlefield to preserve that freedom. We tend to overlook and forget those who have interposed their lives between us and the enemy, the enemies of our nation. Even giving their lives, they often give their lives, that others might have freedom. Freedom that we might welcome another new year, and we can enjoy the blessings that come with that new year. But we must periodically compel ourselves to remember the sacrifice, the sacrifice of those in uniform. In essence, we must not forget. And the military uniforms here tonight are designed to help us not forget, to help us to remember. Oddly enough, it's also very easy for the extraordinary success of our military, and we have a very successful military. And sometimes we are victims of our own success. But it's very easy for the success of our military, our daily enjoyment of freedom, which is the success of our military, and it preserves us from seeing and remembering, it prevents us from seeing and remembering the horrors of war because our service personnel keep the enemies far from our peaceful shores. However, those in uniform are serving, often in obscurity and amenity, as we enjoy the fruits of their service here at home. In a way, we see a similarity to our Lord's sacrifice to his work on the cross. We have salvation, but all too often we don't understand, or maybe a better way of saying is it, saying is we don't reflect on the sacrifice that our Lord made for us on the cross so that we might have this salvation, our spiritual freedom. By analogy, our spiritual freedom comes at a great price also. The Lord Jesus Christ paid with his life on the cross for that freedom. With his sacrifice comes the opportunity for the entire world to be saved, for the entire world to have an opportunity at salvation, a chance to simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for their individual salvation. John 2.2 says, And he himself is the propitiation, the satisfaction, we could say the atonement for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the entire world. Christ physically bled and died during the salvation process, but it was not his physical death that provides salvation, but it's his spiritual death. We know because we know that it was his spiritual death because it wasn't after and it, it, because it was after he said it is finished that he finally and audibly gave up his spirit and died. During those 3 agonizing hours on the cross, 
he was judicially separated from God. And that was the time of his spiritual death. And that was also, therefore, the time of the provision of our salvation. The loss of life in battle is to provide national freedom. And it's not pretty, but it's often necessary. The death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, a spiritual battlefield, the spiritual battlefield that provided salvation was also not pretty. God the Father provided darkness on the earth for three hours, and it was, no, and it was like no other darkness that had ever been seen. It masked the inhuman sight of our Lord Jesus Christ enduring each horrible moment of the guilt of our sins. And this was the time of his separation, his judicial separation from the Father. We use the phrase blood of Christ and his shed blood because it pulls together the analogy that we have from the Old Testament. Sometimes we say it closes that loop. It completes the analogy to the Old Testament illustration of an animal bleeding to death to death on the altar. The animal's blood temporarily covered the sins of the person offering the sacrifice, which symbolized the future death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, which was the actual payment for those sins. Just as we observe these uniforms and should not forget their sacrifice, the sacrifice that they've made for our national freedom, so we observe the Lord's table, communion, in order that we will not forget our Lord's sacrifice on the cross for our spiritual freedom. And this is the reason that our Lord instituted the communion ritual so that we would not forget the source of our salvation. And this evening, as our uniforms symbolize national freedom, national sacrifice, the bread and the cup symbolize the Lord's spiritual death, his sacrifice on the cross. He provides spiritual freedom for us through his work on the cross. In both of these venues, we must not forget. On the night before our Lord was arrested, tried, horribly mutilated and crucified, he established the Lord's table. It's a ritual that would replace the Old Testament sacrifices and specifically the Passover as the Israelites came out of Egypt. Now, this divinely mandated procedure has a new meaning and it has great spiritual significance for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The significance is our deliverance. The bread represents the body of Jesus Christ. He is the incarnate God. He's also undiminished deity, but he's still true humanity. He is one person forever, forever both divine and human. He lived a sinless life making him the only person that would be qualified to go to the cross. He's not only the only one qualified to go to the cross, he's the only one to pay for our sins. The way we illustrate Christ's sinless qualification is by serving unleavened bread. Unleavened meaning or representing, again, his sinless quality. The absence of leaven represents the absence of sin in our Lord's life. The cup of wine or the red beverage represents what Christ accomplished on the cross, his saving work. The liquid in the cup represents blood, and the blood symbolizes Christ's spiritual death. Again, it's his spiritual death that provides spiritual freedom for all mankind. By taking the bread and the cup, we are in essence saying, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal savior. As American citizens, we look at these uniforms and we remember their individual sacrifices. And for those who are away, 
we anticipate their return. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and citizens of heaven, and citizens of heaven, we remember his person, we remember his work, and we anticipate his return. The Lord's Supper is for everyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The ritual is not for unbelievers, for it would be meaningless to unbelievers. There's no biblical requirement here for church membership. Therefore, anyone who is here tonight may partake of the cup and of the bread. As a matter of fact, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are mandated to follow this procedure, this ritual. If you're here tonight and you are an unbeliever, then the solution is simple. Simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and then you may join us in communion. 1 Corinthians 11.28 says that we are to examine ourselves prior to eating of the bread and drinking the cup. Therefore, we pause to confess our sins and prepare ourselves to partake of the communion service. Remember, the bread represents our Lord's sinless perfection as he goes to the cross, and the cup represents his actual work on the cross. And these are the items on which we should be focusing and concentrating. Our confession of sins is done simply with 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We name our sins individually, silently, privately, and succinctly to the Father. And that is what we will do now. By bowing our heads and closing our eyes, you have this opportunity for examining your own souls and for confession of sins. After silent prayer, I ask that Scott Craig offer a prayer of thanksgiving for the bread. Let's bow our heads. Dear Father, thank you for allowing us the privilege to partake in the Lord's table. As we commemorate Christ's work on the cross by means of the bread, is our prayer that the Holy Spirit bring to mind those doctrines that pertain to the Lord's humanity and the perfection that he maintained from birth unto his death so that we, he could qualify to bear the divine judgment for our sins. We understand that it is through our non-meritorious belief in Christ as our Savior that we are able to share eternity in heaven with you. So we thank you, Father, for the ultimate gift the love and the sacrifice of your Son on the cross. We pray these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's our custom to retain the bread until all have been served. Move out.
detail. Forward, march. Detail, halt. Center, pace. In 1 Corinthians 11:23 we read The Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said Take eat this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me I would like to ask Hal Hagemeyer if he would give thanks for the cup. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to worship you by drinking the cup. We know that the liquid represents not only the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that he shed for us when he died physically on the cross, but it also represents, more importantly, his spiritual death on the cross by which he provided for us redemption, reconciliation, justification, propitiation, and many other things which are freely ours when we accept what he has done for us. So we ask, Lord, this evening that you would please remind us of these things, help us to remember the doctrines that we've studied as we worship you by drinking the cup. In Jesus' name, amen. It's our custom to retain the cup until all have been served. Move out. Detail. Forward. March. Detail. Halt. Center. Pace.
In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful that tonight we have national freedom. We're thankful for the symbol of these uniforms that remind us that while our freedom isn't free, that we do have freedom. And it is courtesy, ultimately, of you and immediately of those who have served and sacrificed. We pray for those who are serving tonight that we might have freedom, the freedom to observe our spiritual liberties, and that is the Lord's table. We are thankful, Father, for your great gift, the greatest gift you could have given us, that of your Son, who would go to the cross and provide for us salvation, our spiritual deliverance. And we're thankful, Father, that it is so simple to access that deliverance, that freedom. It's simply by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, by believing on your Son. And at that moment, we have accessed the spiritual freedom that you have given us. Father, help us to remember that this table is not only to remember his sacrifice, but is to remember that he is returning to us. And he's coming someday. And when he does, he will take us back to where our true citizenship is, in heaven. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're told that at the conclusion of the first communion or Lord's table, that our Lord Jesus Christ with his disciples sang a song and then they departed. We have that same custom. Tonight, please stand with us as we sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.
be seated. Some people, at the end of each year, pause to reflect on the events that have occurred in the prior year and maybe make some adjustments, make some changes to the way they've been functioning or maybe they'll simply stay the course, see what they like, they like what they see rather, and they'll continue to maintain that course. I can tell you that I've actually tried that at various times in my life, and sometimes um, you know, you, you're fairly comfortable with what's occurred, and sometimes you have to admit that some changes need to be made. I can also freely admit that as much time as I've probably spent working on a new plan, sometimes that plan just didn't work out. Sometimes uh, you feel like the hours spent doing that might have been successful doing something else, but I still think it's a, a good idea. However, one area of our lives that I think needs continual reflection, and certainly not just at the conclusion of the year, but that's where we find ourselves, and that is our relationship with God. We might think that our relationship with God, if we're saying we're reflecting on that, might be rather narrow. It might be a rather narrow reflection. But I don't think God sees it as a narrow reflection. In fact, I think God views our relationship with Him as every aspect of our lives. Let's open our Bibles tonight to Romans 12. Those who know me and been here know that Romans 12 is one of my favorite passages. And tonight, probably in the interest of time, I probably won't do a lot of exegesis, but we're going to move through at least this first verse, possibly the second verse. But as we look at Romans 12, one of the things we need to understand is the context. And the context for our passage, beginning in verse 1 of Romans 12, comes right out of, as you would expect, Romans 11. Let's read the last part of Romans 11, where we're looking at the character of God. Oh, the depths, and I'm in verse 33, chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past, past finding out. They're unfathomable. We simply don't know the character, the wisdom, the knowledge, the ability, the strength, anything of our God. And then we have some Old Testament quotes. Paul was good at this. He would weave in Old Testament passages. Verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Well, no one knows the mind of the Lord. We simply have no understanding of his mind. Or who has become his counselor? We can't advise him. We can advise the Lord on nothing. He knows everything. How often, though, have we tried to think we know God or to think that we could advise him, that we know his mind or that we could advise him. We can't question him. We can't advise him. Verse 35. Or who has given to him and it shall be repaid to him? No one. Paul says that we are in hopeless debt 
to our Lord Jesus Christ. We are in hopeless debt for his salvation and we're in hopeless debt to God the Father for the marvelous plan that he has provided for us. Verse 36. For of him and through him and to him are all things. And what that phrase is trying to tell us is that, first of all, of him. He's the source. God is the source. He's the creator. And through him, he is the sustainer. God sustains all things. He's the means and the sustainer. And to him. In other words, it's the culmination. Everything that God has, everything that he does, is moving in a path, a direction that will culminate in his goals. And then, to him be glory forever. Amen. Verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Now that we've seen the character of God, we've seen that we don't know the mind of God, we can't advise him, we can't counsel him. We know that we owe him a debt that can't be paid, and we know that everything is to him, through him, uh, of him, through him, and to him. And then Paul says, by way of application, what now? He says, therefore, I, Paul, beseech, wonderful word here, we'll see it on Sunday. It means actually a spectrum. It can mean to be encouraged. It can mean to uh, comfort. It can mean to exhort, admonish. Some translations say beseech. I exhort you, therefore. And I think we could probably move the word therefore to the beginning of the sentence and say, therefore, I exhort you, brethren. And we've already studied this word brethren, so we don't need to spend any time here. We know that this is referring to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, both male and female. He's writing directly to the Romans who will receive this letter, but by extension, he's writing to us. He says, therefore, I, Paul, therefore, I exhort or admonish you, urge you, beseech you by the mercies of God through his mercies, we might say by his mercies, but through his mercies. And it's because of God's great compassion. And this is a good substitution here for the word mercies. We are not consumed. We've seen that. It's by his compassions that we are not consumed. But we have the opportunity that Paul is about ready to express. He says, By the mercies of God that you present yourselves. And the word present here can also mean submit. That we present ourselves, that we submit ourselves. The word actually means to put yourself at someone else's disposal. And so he says, therefore, I, by the mercies of God, by his compassions, I exhort you that you present or you submit your bodies. And the word bodies here can be somewhat confusing unless we understand what he truly means by the word bodies. And the word bodies means giving of our total life, giving our lives in a complete or a total way. It means giving one's body in a way, in a matter of speaking. So it's a figure of speech. And the figure of speech is saying everything. If we give our bodies, what else is there? Brains attached, thoughts attached, Legs are attached, what we could go. Hands are attached, what we could do. Mouths attached, what we could say. Eyes are attached, what we could see. It's everything. And that's what this figure of speech means. That you give your bodies. And then he says, a living sacrifice. That we present ourselves, that we submit ourselves, our bodies, a living sacrifice. And a sacrifice... Here, we're going to take these words because what we could pro the way we could probably translate this is that you present or you submit your bodies a sacrifice, living, holy, and well-pleasing. 
The translation living sacrifice, I think, communicates it to a certain extent. But let's look at the word sacrifice first. The idea of sacrifice is that you are presenting something. You are offering something. And those who would read this passage would immediately understand it as being a comparison to the Old Testament, to the Old Testament sacrifices. The Old Testament sacrifices were given. They were animals or they could be a production of the field, but they were given wholly and completely. And when the sacrifice was given, the individual who was given the sacrifice receives nothing back. It's a sacrifice, and it's offered, and it's given completely. It says living, a sacrifice living. And in the Old Testament, the, the sacrifice was killed. That was the end of the sacrifice's life. Or if you gave something uh, that had been grown, a grain offering, it was gone. It was given, and you didn't have it any longer. But... When it comes to a person, and it says a living sacrifice, this is a way of continuous giving. The idea is, is this sacrifice continues to be given. We keep on living, and we keep on giving. Another way of saying this is that we offer ourselves, and then we offer ourselves, and then we offer ourselves. It's a continual thing. It's the idea that it doesn't stop. And so to see that idea of a living sacrifice, we need to see that we never stop offering ourselves. And that is a sacrifice living or a living sacrifice. And then it says holy. And the idea behind holy, and we've studied this word before, is that it is set apart. It's dedicated to service. So this is not only us offering continually ourselves, our lives. But it's given with a certain idea in mind. It's set apart. It's dedicated for a particular purpose. And in this case, we'll see that it is dedicated to the Lord for whatever he would have use, but we often say for service. And then we see well-pleasing. A sacrifice is sacrificed with the idea, it's given, it's offered with the idea of being pleasing to the person to whom it was offered. Probably our first example of this is given in Genesis 4 when we have two brothers bringing a sacrifice or bringing a better word there would be offering. And... One of the offerings, Abel's, was well-pleasing. The Hebrew word there says that God regarded it. He viewed it. And the idea is is that he viewed it in a positive manner. It was well-pleasing to him. But Cain's was not. Cain's offering was not acceptable. God did not view it in a pleasing manner. And so... When we offer a sacrifice, it's not only supposed to be now, as we uh, relate to our lives, not only to be living and to be set apart specifically to God for a purpose, but it's also supposed to be well-pleasing. So whatever it is we are doing, it must be acceptable. It, uh, it must be acceptable. It must be well-pleasing to God. And then we see that we conclude the verse, or we conclude that phrase, saying that it's acceptable to God. And I think sometimes we read very quickly over the phrase to God, because this is an offering that we are given, that we are giving to God. It's not to us. And very often what we do in our lives is first pleasing to us. But God says as believers, we are to submit, we are to offer our bodies, not to us, not to someone else, but to God. And I think if we understand that the standard here is to God, not to us, we see that we have a very high standard, in fact, to attain. So, 
we must try to make our lives worthy or acceptable to God. We need to ensure that we're, whatever it is that we're doing is honoring to God because that is the person to whom it's offered. Then it says, which is your reasonable service. That's what my translation says. It's plural, which is y'all. So he's not talking to a specific individual, but he's talking to those who are believers in this age, this church age, to those in the assembly. And he says, which is y'all's reasonable. And this word gives us translators a little bit of difficulty because it's translated several different ways, but it's only used uh, a couple times in the Bible. I believe it can be translated reasonable. I think it gets us a little closer if we say acceptable. In other words, what is acceptable to God? We owe him our lives. He created us, and after the fall, he has provided salvation. We owe a debt that cannot be paid. So, is presenting our bodies living, holy, and acceptable? Is that acceptable to us? Is that reasonable? Absolutely. And that's what it says. That is our reasonable or our acceptable service. That's what our service is. And of course, the word service can be seen. This is the word that's often taken, and we use the Greek word in the Old Testament when we translate the Hebrew into the Greek. It is the kind of work, the kind of service that was done by the Levitical priesthood in the tabernacle and in the temple. Would you consider their service to truly be to God? Would it be holy? Would it be acceptable? Absolutely. Would it be well-pleasing? Well, it had to be well-pleasing. Those who did not perform well-pleasing acts in the tabernacle or temple were executed by God. And so our service, our service should be seen in that light. It's service to God. We could even call it worship in some cases. So if we're presenting our bodies, which is everything, and we're presenting it to God, this relates, of course, to our entire lives. Romans 12.1 tells us that we are, in fact, to present everything in our lives in service to God. This is what Paul was addressing in Colossians 3.23. Let's keep our fingers in Romans 12 and just go over a few pages, a few books past Philippians, which should almost fall open on your, from your Bible, and then to Colossians. And in Colossians 3.23, we see that Paul addresses this in another way. He's talking to, first of all, wives in 18. He's talking to husbands in verse 19. He's talking to children in verse 20. He gets back to fathers in 21. And then in 22, he's talking to servants. But when he gets to 23, he continues, he gathers them all up, and he says, and whatever you do, in other words, everything which you all do, in everything that you do, do it heartily. And this work, really the word here is taken from the soul. You do it from your soul. You do it heartily as to the Lord. And you'll notice Paul thought the same thing. I can't put myself on his level, but he says you do it to the Lord. You don't do it to men. So when we give a sacrifice, when we offer a sacrifice, our bodies, it's to God. And this is do it unto the Lord and not to men. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive a ward of the inheritance. We will receive rewards. We have an inheritance. See, what this verse also tells us is that if we aren't living our lives as unto the Lord, there is a loss of this inheritance, portions of this inheritance. And we need to study that someday. It says, you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Verse 25, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality with God. So, that's what Paul has in mind as he addresses this in Romans as well, Romans 12. 
And this is what we saw in the Old Testament sacrifices, giving everything or giving all. This is what we saw in the Old Testament when sacrifices were given without spot and without blemish. Now, we know that that was an analogy also to our Lord Jesus Christ, who in the future would go to the cross in a sinless manner. But if we were required to give a sacrifice that was without spot and without blemish, we would probably have to go through most of the herd to find that kind of an animal. So what does this tell us? Not only is he looking for something from us that is valuable, but it's probably the very best that we have. And I think that's what the Israelites had to realize as they gave of themselves. They were giving the best that they had to the Lord. It was what God wanted them. He was reminding them that they owed him a great debt and they need to focus on who he is and what he is. And one of the ways they would do that is by giving to him the very best that they had. God expects our best in whatever we're doing, and of course, whatever we're doing, it must be seen as honoring to God. Very often we try to justify what we're doing as being honoring to God. We'll say, oh, well, I'll dedicate this to God. And we say that often. We like to say that. We like to believe that what we're doing, we're dedicating to God, and very often we are. But sometimes it's what we want to do. It's what we want to produce. It's where we want to go. And then we simply justify it as being unto God. We need to be careful as we do that. So at the end of the year, I think it's worthwhile to reflect. And I think we can reflect. A reflection here can be done in Romans 12.1. We do that by saying, Am I presenting my body my life as a living sacrifice, something offered to God that pleases him. Holy, it's set apart, it's dedicated for service, well-pleasing to God, which is our reasonable or acceptable service. And how do we do that? This would be, this is extremely difficult. How do we give our entire being so that it pleases God? The question of how we do this Paul answered in verse 2. Chapter 12 of Romans verse 2 says, you do this by not being conformed to the world. And do not be conformed to this world. What's interesting about that word conformed is it's in the passive. It's very easy for us to be conformed to this world. It happens naturally. We have a sin nature. We live in Satan's world. We are bombarded daily by cosmic doctrine, by satanic doctrine. And it's a passive thing. Some of us go at it actively as well. But it's a very passive thing. It just happens. But we're not allowed that to happen. And do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed. And that's another passive we're to be transformed. Something transforms us. God transforms us. God the Holy Spirit transforms us as we focus on the Word of God and as we focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And now we are active. How do we renew our minds? It's actively pursued by studying the Word of God. That you may what? Prove what is good, what is acceptable or well-pleasing, and the perfect will of God. And I think that this is where we should be at the end of the year. I think that we should examine ourselves. Paul sets a very high standard coming out of chapter 11. He says, we have a God, very often described by many as an awesome God. That word doesn't necessarily always have the meaning that I would like, but his character is unfathomable to us. And what he has done for us, 
We often think we know, but we really don't. Someday we will. When the Lord returns and we are raptured and we receive our resurrection body and we are with him in heaven, I think we will then begin to know in our our glorified body all that God has done for us. In the meantime, we have this challenge, this awesome challenge of presenting our bodies, living our lives, giving everything that we have for him. Why? Because he has done everything for us. And I think this is also what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 5.15. This is our last verse for tonight. Ephesians 5.15. Again, just in front of Philippians. But this is what Paul was talking about. And I think at the end of this year and as we begin next year, as we look at an election year, we might understand what Paul's saying here. Verse 15 of Ephesians 5, he says, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools. We would be foolish to ignore what God has provided for us. We would be foolish to lose portions of our inheritance. We would be foolish to focus on ourselves and not on God. But as wise, redeeming the time, making the absolute most of our time. And as we move to the new year, we must be redeeming the time, making the most of the time, offering ourselves, submitting our bodies to him. Why? Because the days are evil. And if you don't think the days are evil, we've not seen uh, the end of it as we move into our election year. It's a leap year. Some of us might like to just leap over it. But it's coming. And I think if we reflect on what we've done past year in our lives and realize that the upcoming year requires us to do as Paul tells us in Romans 1, is to truly submit ourselves, present our bodies, everything we do, as a living, as a holy and a sacrifice that's well-pleasing to God, then I think we'll begin the new year with a proper attitude. And that's an attitude that will be very difficult, but it comes from focusing on who and what our Lord Jesus Christ is. And we did that tonight with a direct focus by having the Lord's table, the communion service. There is no better way for us to start the year or to end the year and then start the year then with the Lord's table, the communion service. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the Word of God that guides us. We're thankful that we have so great a salvation. But after salvation, what? After salvation, we now must focus on who and what the Lord is in our lives, in everything we do. And we must do this in a way that is acceptable to you. We're thankful, Father, that we have this, the Word of God, that helps us to renew our minds. We are not simply here to be bombarded by the the ideas, the viewpoint of the world. And we're not to be thinking Satan's thoughts. We may not always see them as that, But human viewpoint is just that. It's cosmic doctrine. It's the thoughts that Satan would have us think. We are to be thinking divine viewpoint. And divine viewpoint comes from the Word of God. Father, we're thankful that we have the Word of God, that we can study, that we might have divine viewpoint, so that we can submit our bodies, our everything, to you, and it will be acceptable. We ask these things in Jesus' name.